This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach and a writer, and my newish book is Find Your Happy at Work. Our repeat guest today is a well-known expert on the state of the American workplace. I'm talking about Joan Lynch, who is head of all content at Working Nation. Joan has long been a powerful woman in media, including as an executive at ESPN. Working Nation creates and distributes instructive and inspiring stories about the current and future state of work. Today, Joan will talk about how, in spite of the recent job growth, there are still many equities and disconnects in the system. She'll talk about recent trends and new programs and systems and understanding that's going to lead to uh, many new programs. And she'll talk about recent trends related to remote work. Joan will also talk about how employers are starting to question whether it makes sense, in the case of many jobs, to recruit only workers with college degrees. Joan, it is so great to have you back, and there is so much to talk about these days about the workplace that makes it particularly special to have you back. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And you're right. We have a lot to catch up on. Well, I'd like to start a little bit by asking about um, Working Nation, because I I read somewhere that they were celebrating their sixth anniversary. And I remembered when they started, they were focused or you were focused on the future of work and they seem to be way ahead of the time, but things have happened so quickly. What are they doing now? Is the mission still the same? Have you been tweaking it? What's going on with you? Yeah, it's a it, it's been a kind of a crazy year. And it, it, you're right, we celebrated our sixth anniversary in September, um, have been continuing to tell stories um, that our founder, when he came up with the idea of Working Nation, was really determined to tell about how you know, broken education, longevity, living longer and working longer, technology and globalization are are really changing our workforce and are changing our country and 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 in that way affecting our economy. So we've continued to tell those stories. Um, you know, the last couple of years, things have changed for everyone, uh, and it certainly changed the workforce, as you know. So we've we. In the beginning, we're telling stories just to let people know this is coming. You need to understand what reskilling looks like. You need to understand the changes in technology and what you need to know to be prepared to have a life-sustaining career. Um, But some things, as we all know, happen that are totally unexpected. So a couple of things in particular have changed uh, and have had us pivot in the last two years obviously the first one being the pandemic. So nothing that any one of us could have expected, but it is it has sped the process of the changes that are, have been happening in the workforce, uh, some say by 10 or 15 years yeah. in a matter of months. So, um, you know, not only did it change the conversation about remote work, which some people knew about, 
um, and, and had access to, um, digital access, which I know is something that, that we'll probably end up talking about, but also things like the differences between men and women in the workforce, um, working parents, how they deal with those things. And then all the way into, um, the pandemic really changed the conversation about certain manufacturing in, in this country when it came to supply chain, when it came to things that we just couldn't get in this country during the pandemic that changed us all the way down to, um, to uh, national security and cyber and conversations about that. So in a way that that has been the major change in uh, some of the storytelling that we've done. And, and it's just raised the urgency of how important it is to have these conversations. The other one that I would say is the big one in the last couple of years is, un is the unfortunate raising um, of uh, conversations about racial inequity in this country. You know, it, it existed. Um, people were feeling it. They knew it. We knew it was a problem in education. We knew it was a problem in access to good jobs um, and hiring. Um, but at a time when it got very scary and ugly in this country, we had the ability at Working Nation to step into that from a jobs and skills perspective and tell a lot of stories because we talk about solutions that pointed to who's doing the best work um, to help make sure that we equalize and, and have a better uh, equal playing field for everybody out there. So I would say those are the two big ones that have had us pivot in the last couple of years. And really the last thing is over the six years we've told uh, we've made probably 4,000 pieces of content. Uh, we are now in a position where we're diving a little bit more narrow into certain groups. So as you know, we do November, we dedicate to veterans. This October, we're dedicating to people with disabilities and work. And then next year, we're really doing a lot of work around working moms, um, the Hispanic population, and a lot more on healthcare. Well, I think that you were impressively uh, ahead of your time. And so many of the issues that you've just mentioned that accelerated or shifted or uh, attracted more attention were ones that you um, were thinking about at the very beginning, as I recall. So um, congratulations on calling a lot of these things, even though even you had to have been um, totally caught by surprise at the speed in which all kinds of um, changes occurred. Absolutely. Yeah. And you asked, you know, did it change our mission? I would say it didn't change our mission, but it, it certainly made it feel um, more important. We knew going in that this was a big issue in our country. We knew that there were conversations about the pushing out of the middle class if we didn't make some changes around work. But the urgency at which um, we are now working has definitely uh, changed. I'm so impressed with our team, our journalists, our, you know, we had to obviously like every other group had to change the way we worked during COVID and, uh, you know, working remote and telling stories in different ways. But, um, you know, we also feel that in this time, employment became a conversation that it wasn't six years ago. We, you and I have talked about You'll talk about the jobs numbers, not you, but the, you, you do, you mentioned it, but you know, yeah. on TV, they talk about the jobs numbers and they talk about manufacturing and they talk about companies leaving or outsourcing. But, and, and oftentimes, as we know, the jobs numbers are just ex extremely misleading, but this opportunity has 
people were talking sp so much about employment from so many different levels. Why are people leaving the workforce? What does it look like to, to work remotely? Can businesses sustain it? The, the um, respect and the appreciation for our frontline workers who aren't just nurses and doctors, but we're the people in our grocery stores and we're the people that were, you know, out fixing things in our communities that needed to get fixed when some of us had the ability to hunker down. Um, it has absolutely elevated the conversation about what work means, what jobs are available. Um, and I, and our president Jane Oates does a fabulous job. She's in the news all the time really, really talking now about workforce participation and how low it is. And those conversations are important. And I don't think that, that those are conversations that the general public had really been considering prior to um, COVID. So it's given us an opportunity with respect to how awful it has been and devastating to families and communities. Um, it has given us an opportunity where people are talking about it more. So you know, thank you for saying it. We we did create this, not expecting any of this to happen, but we are right at the center of one of the most important conversations that can be had right now. Well, you also pointed out that one of the things that happened quickly is a, a much deeper awareness of the inequities, the disconnects in the system, the lack of inclusion, the lack of appreciation for workers who are doing things that are vital and have been taken for granted. So there's a lot of, um, I think, interest and support for workers in a way there hasn't been that, that I recall. Can you um, point to areas where the, this interest and awareness and, and also the real need for workers is, is um, helping to helping employers or others come up with uh, new solu new solutions, new way of hiring or training, new ways of doing things. Absolutely, there's some there's some very exciting things happening right now. And and the first thing that comes to mind is is a campaign that was actually launched last week uh, in an announcement in New York, and we we're lucky to be the media partners um, for this campaign. But it's um, a campaign called Tear the Paper Ceiling. And it was designed over the last couple of years. Um, it's a partnership between the Ad Council, Ogilvy, and Opportunity at Work, a fantastic organization that we've been partnered with for years. And what they're doing is they're highlighting this often overlooked um, or underutilized group of potential workers, which is the 70 plus million US workers who don't have a college degree. They call them STARS, which stands for Skilled Through Alternative Routes. Um, and we know that it, for decades that upward mobility in this country for STARS, for people that don't have degrees, has been very difficult. And um, part of that has been through new technology because they are screened out through certain algorithms. You know, when a company has a thousand people apply for a job, it's very easy to say, okay, how do we get the top 50 people we want to look at, well, let's put in these particular um, elements, one of them being a college degree, even if a college degree is really not key to what that job is. So, you know, so the challenges for this, this group of people, they were screened out potentially by these invisible barriers. They potentially, if they haven't gone to school, have things that some of us take for granted, which is alumni networks. Um, and also there's just general stereotypes or misconceptions 
as we may have talked about in the past about the trades, um, about really wonderful career opportunities that do not in any way necessitate someone getting a college degree. So we love this campaign and being a part of it because it's what it's doing is it's asking employers to commit to removing a bachelor's degree as a screening element to get people into these jobs. And, um, you know, Byron Agust, who who runs Opportunity at Work, recently did a podcast with our editor-in-chief, Ramona Schindelheim, and he said, and I believe this is true for myself, um, that most of the skills that we use in our lives and our jobs, we use through the work that we do or the experiences that we have. So these stars, they may not have a college degree, but they ha- they may have some work experience. They may have certifications, which are, you know... Um, which are very valuable, but might not show up in these screening things. They might be veterans who have, ex, you know, extraordinary experience in different areas that are literally pushed out of the screening process because of something so simple as a bachelor's degree. So that's one area that I get really excited about. And we were great, glad to be a part of the announcement last week because there's uh, 50 plus major companies that have already signed on to do this, like Google and LinkedIn and Comcast and IBM. And, you know, I mentioned LinkedIn as an example, because even at Working Nation a couple of years ago, we went to hire an executive assistant. And if you go, LinkedIn's an amazing property. If you, you know, this was a couple of years ago, I think it has changed. But when we went in to create the job description for our executive assistant, they give you a template. And the template included a college degree as a requirement. And we didn't need a college degree for the person that we were hiring. We needed somebody who was a go-getter, who could get, you know, work hard. Uh, it, it was not necessarily something that that was um, had anything to do with the actual work experience and, and work that we needed. So those things are changing. Um, and I think that that, that is going to increase the value, as we said, of millions and millions of Americans who are looking for jobs, who chose for whatever reason not to go for a four-year degree. Well, some of those people uh, might have a good bit of experience and have skills that could be redeployed. Some may be very young and need um, to have some kind of training. Some may um, be older workers who have limited opportunities but could be retrained and have all the skills to allow them to learn new things. So it's a real mixed bag. So does this um, program or uh, the movement and the employers who are signing up are are they thinking not just about getting rid of the requirement for a degree when it's not really necessary, but also finding ways to expand their training programs, uh, do something like mid-career fellowships? Are, are are you seeing a bunch of programs that are kind of creative as new ways of making the connection when you're not just asking for a degree? Absolutely. Yeah. We, and we tell stories, you know, our journalism team tells stories every day about different programs that are doing that. When we just told a story about one called uh, Power Corps in, in Philadelphia that um, is in partnership with AmeriCorps um, that is, you know, getting people into jobs actually in, in clean energy, but it's, it's, you know, these academies that they're creating. Um, and I, I think the positive of this, having having spent a lot of time now with our friends at SHRM, uh, who are, you know, specifically the HR professionals around the country, the conversation about skills um, in hiring has changed 
but the conversation about skills and upskilling, you know, is, is increasing very quickly. And so we, you know, we did a documentary series and, and a digital magazine about Indianapolis. And we, we said that it sort of broke out into three ways. How do you build your talent in a community, meaning education? How do you, um, retain your talent, meaning when you give them an education, whatever that is, if it if it's, you know, high school degree, apprenticeships, certifications, college, how do you keep them in your community? And then also for businesses, how do you attract talent? And so what we're seeing is that the, the companies that are doing the best in this are companies who are saying, what do we need to do to advance our own people? What skills do we need to give them? How do we look into the future, which is at the core of Working Nation from you know six years ago launch, eight years ago when we first came up with the idea, is you know how do you look into the future and say, okay, these jobs on our floor in this manufacturing plant might look like this now. But with technology, what are they going to look like in two years or three years? And what are the skills that are going to be necessary? And how do we train the people that have been dedicated to our company for 10, 15 years, generations in some communities? How do we prepare them so that as that changes, they can seamlessly move into those positions? So instead of running a manufacturing um, um, facility or um, a, a machine, now all of a sudden you're working with technology and you're using technology to repair that machine. And now you're, you're, you have even more skills and, and potentially then that your income goes up, um, all of that does. And along with that, your purpose in life goes up because you're feeling like I'm a lifelong learner. I'm important to this company. I'm valued because they're putting the money and the skills into me. Um, and then the back end of that is we can help some of these communities around the country continue to survive because we're seeing a lot of, as you know, a lot of communities in this country are really struggling because they're losing businesses. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. It feels like um, a lot of the exciting things that are happening assume that the potential workers have some degree of digital literacy, but there's still a pretty big divide between people who kind of have a, a enough digital knowledge so that they could step into a trading program and people who maybe don't have access to broadband and like in rural areas, there's still millions and millions and millions of people and others who don't have the beginning is, is dealing with um, digital literacy. Uh, one of the absolute basics that the 
country has to grapple with in order to uh, prepare a much more uh, flexible workplace. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And, you know, the we were watching when the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act got signed last year, um, and they put in over $40 million for expanding internet access. Um, but one, one um, article that I read referred to it as the cru- crucial infrastructure issue in this country is getting access to these people. And, you know, working nation's been saying for years that technological understanding is key for any job in the future. Um, and the pandemic definitely sped that up. And, and again, the, the positive is it sped up the conversation because, um, you know, you'd see, I, I've used this example before, but you'd see people on Facebook, watch a young child sitting outside of a McDonald's using a Wi-Fi so that they could get their work done, their homework done. Um, and people GoFundMe would be set up and people would, you know, be, you know, up in arms that this child didn't have access. Well, what you're talking about, Beverly, is 100% right. There's a large chunk of this country that does not have access. So um, we need to talk about that. And, you know, Pew recently said that, you know, I think it was three in 10 people in rural areas don't have access to this. I mean, we're talking about more than 20 million people just in those rural areas. One thing that I thought was interesting, too, is that they also said in rural areas, 40% of schools and 60% of healthcare facilities, this is outside of cities, had no broadband access. That's a, that, that's an incredibly large number. So at the numbers that they're looking at, you know, they're saying over 150 million people in this country don't have access to the type of technology. And, and during COVID, as I said, the, the conversation changed for some of us, it was very easy to say, Oh, I'll work from home. Um, but then we started to talk about what what was happening with families that had one or two working parents that potentially were working from home, as well as one, two, three children that needed access to computers or tablets or something in order to go go to school. And you can't look at the the issues and the the placement of where the United States falls in terms of education in the world right now, where we have fallen back and not look at the last two years and think about who has access to technology in their homes, in their regions. And in some cases, it's one computer for all of those people. So very difficult conversations had to be had in terms of who's using it. Do they have access, which is as what we started out to talk about. But even if they do have access, you know, who gets it? We saw and had many conversations about um it, they they often said women lo- leaving the workforce because they had to because they were taking care of their children or they couldn't use, they didn't have two computers but i think it i don't think it's just a female conversation i think it was both men and women that were having to make those choices so um there so i think it's a two-pronged problem which is this infrastructure bill hopefully will start to get these rural areas the access they need to the technology in doing that that also gives them access to opportunity for fabulous online programs to get certifications, to network with people. So from an economic perspective, you know, we, 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 from educational outcomes, economic success in this country, to just participating in society, um, all of these are key to these rural areas getting better access and also having a conversation about, okay, do people have the technical skills um, 
to to use the technology that they have? Uh, how do we better get them the skills that they need? And there are great programs out there. But overall, what you're hitting on is a major conversation. And I feel it's still not talked about enough. Well, there's certainly a lot more talk than there used to be. There's a lot more information as as we've been talking about that, you know, the conversation is is widespread. So I guess that's good news that at least a lot of people are grappling with some of the questions. But on the topic of good news, I just looking at your website, I see that one of the things you're doing is shining a light on a lot of opportunities. For some people in some places and some lines of work, there are a lot of jobs out there. So where are some of the opportunities that you're seeing around the country or, you know, in certain fields? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've always been really interested in the healthcare field because it's so broad. I was just having a conversation with some folks from Johnson and Johnson yesterday, and we were talking about how, you know, um, when people think about healthcare, they think about white coats, they think about doctors and nurses, but as we all know, it's much broader than that. Um, and it extends into areas like engineering and because of the attention that COVID brought to healthcare, it extends into conversations about chemistry and immunizations and how, and the process with which to, you know, people have to work so quickly. We had so many stories about how people were working so quickly to try to come up with these things. Um, but you know, health tech is a huge growing area that, that we're really focused on and some of the supporting jobs that are out there. Um, one of the other things that I think is really interesting, there's a program that, um, that we highlighted a couple of weeks ago when you say regionally that I think is really exciting and it's called Jobs Ohio. Um, And part of that came from uh, this conversation that I mentioned earlier about the supply chain and the idea of, you know, we only make in this country 12% of the global supply of computer chips. And yet, what drives everything that we're doing now is these computer chips. So in the state of Ohio and in this particular um, program, they've identified different key sectors that they believe that they can grow. So those are from manufacturing to energy, logistics, healthcare, agriculture, even um, aviation. Um, So there's some companies there like uh, Intel and others that are bringing, I mean, upwards of tens of thousands of jobs to the to the state of Ohio. So certain regions, we love telling stories about solutions. We love telling stories about how the solutions are local and highlighting groups like this that are getting it right. And businesses are either moving to Ohio because they're seeing that this is happening or um, the businesses that are already there are expanding their footprint in that area. So, you know, I, in our, in the conversation we had that, you know, Intel that's there, it's not just the Intel jobs. They identified for us over 150 companies that are their own supply chain that are based in the state of Ohio. So, you know, when we, and, and what we love about telling these stories is then we see other states and other workforce boards um, and other folks that in other regions saying, how do we better do this? How do we look at our state? We need this for our economy, both nationally and and locally. But how do we best prepare and look at what are the needs of this country? And in doing so, what we're seeing is they're identifying pretty phenomenal 
um, job opportunities. So, you know, I, I think again, COVID, COVID brought us to this place that, that raised an alarm on certain areas of, you know, manufacturing of, um, of things within the healthcare space that we just couldn't get when we couldn't get masks and gloves for hospitals and other areas. And, and we recognized, and people were asking, wait, why, why is it that we're totally dependent on other countries for this when we're seeing empty manufacturing um, warehouses and facilities around our country and, and communities dying? Why can't we bring this back? And the answer is we can. And there's fantastic leaders out there that are. And so I'm excited to, as this we're going through this process, we're starting to see these exceptional new thought leaders in the space of, um, of not only how do I make my business better, but how do I grow my workforce? And how do I make sure that my community is best set for people to have real careers? Well, I'm... Um been very interested in seeing what's happening in Ohio. Of course, um, this podcast is produced by WOUB, which is affiliated with Ohio University. So uh, it, it's been particularly interesting to see. And I think part of what's happening is that employers and government and universities and um every layer of government can work together and address some of these issues like the digital divide. And when you have people who are willing to collaborate, it's possible to, to create quite a bit of change. Uh, do you see a lot of public-private partnerships or employer education, those kind of partnerships uh, being part of the wave of new jobs? We do. We do. And um, some of the more exciting ones are when we are able to raise awareness of a certain field and um, companies start to recognize, oh, which, you know, they already know. They can't find the workforce that they need. And when they are partnering with community colleges locally to create their own workforce, um, I'm not sure it's something we've discussed before, but, you know, we did a piece a couple of years ago on the extreme need for people in the prosthetic space. Um, people are living longer we have, you know, issues in health, of health in our country, obesity and others that are causing people to lose limbs. Um, we're not seeing as many soldiers or, or military folks coming back with the catastrophic injuries, but when they do, um, what we're able to, to produce now makes it much easier for them to, to live and operate and work um, as normally as, as possible. So when we found that there was this great need for these people in this space of prosthetics. We highlighted a, a, a program and it was at a community college. And we realized there was only 11 community colleges in the country that had this type of program. And yet they had a 99 or hundred percent placement rate. So what was happening is then you start to recognize the hospitals in the region are, are seeing, you know, our stories or hearing about these things and saying, Oh, that we have that problem as well. We don't have the people to make the product but we can very easily go in and partner with an education program or, you know, it could be a certification program. I was just talking to some folks from SpaceX who are saying, we don't need a college degree. What we need is these certifications. And in some cases, these are six week certifications and these people can start very good jobs at SpaceX. So, um, so what raising the awareness of this, I think, um, is a great way for other businesses, again, to say, perhaps we don't need a four-year degree. Let's find the certification that is out there. Or if, or if these companies, which we know of, 
don't have a certification that these employers need, they will create them. They will work with the employers and say, what do you need? What are the skills that you need? We will create the program. And they're, again, in that partnership, they're creating their own workforce. Well, it's great that some imaginative partnerships are you know, working together to, to create the kind of programs we need. I just noticed the time. We're running out of time. There's always too much to talk about when you're here. But I do want to ask one final question. Way back on your first visit here, one of the things you mentioned is the potential for a lot of green jobs. And we don't hear, or at least I haven't been hearing quite so much about green jobs lately. What's the status of um, uh, manufacturing new jobs as part of, of green um, programs? It's been really exciting. We kicked off our series Green Jobs Now in January, um, going state by state. And one of the things that we really wanted to make clear was the problem in some cases wasn't that there wasn't green jobs. The problem was that they weren't being identified as green. Um, And so we worked really closely with um, Lightcast, which is just been renamed, but it was Burning Glass when we started, a very good partner of ours, and a group called Missy to do research into these state by state. But some of it was just about changing the terminology. Even on, on the job descriptions, if you go into some of these major companies that are green, that are wind turbine companies or wind working with water or other things, there's only a certain percentage of the population of their their staff that on the job description even mentioned anything about the environment. And yet you could argue, I would argue, that when you have these companies and they're building and expanding, you cannot do that run that business without the accountants and the lawyers and the people that are the, the staff within these organizations. So we set out to identify, you know, and, and expand. So it's not just a green job, but we, we said there's core green jobs, there's enabled green jobs, enabling and potential green jobs. There's four different buckets of them. Um, and so by expanding it and saying, you know, this might be an asphalt company and people don't think about asphalt as being green, but all asphalt at this point is being recycled. Um, and there's fabulous, you know, state by state information that we found, um, where people that are looking for jobs that might have different skills might be good with numbers and want to be in accounting, might want to be in investing that might not know about the, fantastic programs of um, investment that that come from investing specifically in companies that are doing good and green. Uh, but back to your to your initial question, it's a growing space. It's a um, you know Colorado, for example, is one that we found you know that they're expected to grow by almost ten and a half percent in the next five years in terms of of the number of green jobs. and that's you know, that's probably five or more percent higher than the national growth in other areas. So there, and, and I will also say that particular one was interesting to us because the changes that have happened in Colorado have happened under both democratic and Republican uh, governors. So uh, what, what the other outcome of this that I thought was fantastic is green in the beginning could be a very polarizing word what we have found in talking to these companies in all of these states is people care about the environment. They might be, they might get a little triggered by the word green, 
um, because of, you know, policies or any of that. But people want this, this country and our environment to be clean. They want their water to be clean. They want more access to, to a clean environment. I just look at the storms and, and things that are happening in this country. Um, they, they want our environment to be healthy. And what we did through this project um, is be able to identify, yes, the number of jobs are growing. They look different than what you think they are, which is very exciting because it means more opportunity for more people. It's different education levels for all of these different jobs. So you do not have to have a PhD in order to have a job that's green. Um, and there are jobs in the green space in every state in this country. That is very good and helpful news. I, I think it particularly important that whether you're in marketing or HR or whatever, um, by doing research into the companies, into the programs, um, it's possible to find jobs that are going to help support a, a cleaner environment. And so there's, there are many possibilities out there. Well, thank you so much for uh, all your insights, Joan, and thanks for all the good work you're doing at Working Nation. It's great to have so many interesting stories that are helping us understand this very fast-moving workplace. Well, thank you for your passion in talking about it. It's it's uh, it's important to us, and we know we know from telling the stories and and the reaction that we're getting that it's really important to the American public, and they want this information for themselves and for their children and for future generations. Well, at the rate things are changing, we're going to hope to have you come back soon and tell us the latest. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Working Nation Executive Joan Lynch about the state of the American workplace. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today's tip is that recruiters want to know what you can do and not just where you've been. Everything you do to develop real-world experience and every time you get practical training can help you get your next job. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. We hope you come back soon.